Welcome to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast, everybody. I just want to put this introduction on the front of today's episode here because time ran away once I got talking to Dr. Bill. This is our longest podcast yet, but it is absolutely full of amazing content. What a great guy and advocate Dr. Bill is. I'm sure we could have carried on talking for hours. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, I forgot to ask Bill where listeners could follow him. But you can reach him on Instagram at Dr. Bill Schindler on Facebook, or better yet, he has his own website where he has some super videos and great content. Stay tuned after our chat for an exclusive offer that Dr. Bill gave us for all our listeners of this podcast. He gave us a coupon code for the products on his own website, just exclusively to listeners. And if you if you listen all the way through to the end, I'll, I'll reveal what it is there. He's an absolute top bloke. You can go to his website, eatlikeahuman.com. And remember, if you like these podcasts and you like the content in these podcasts, give us a rating and give us a review. It helps others to find us and others to join in with the journey. So I hope you enjoy this one. I'll hand you over to Dr. Bill. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast once again. And today we've got a very exciting guest with us today. We've got Dr. Bill Schindler. And uh, Bill, if you can just uh, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and what you stand for. Sure, absolutely. So I am a food archaeologist, chef, and director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College here on the Eastern Shore, Maryland, in the U.S., um, and my work is really focused on, you know, really doing three things all at the same time, trying to best understand our ancestral dietary past, so that deep dietary past that extends for literally millions of years. Um, and I hope we get a, a, a lot of chances today to talk about some of that work, um, because I fully believe that dietary past built us as humans, both biologically and culturally. Um, I in addition to that understanding, I work very hard to try to understand indigenous and traditional diets around the world that are currently um, still in practice. And finally, um, I spend a lot of time trying to best understand um, you know, modern culinary skills, modern culinary arts to really take that other information and, and fuse all three of these things together to create a, a dietary future that is meaningful, accessible, and relevant for all of us. That's great, Bill. So uh, here at uh, Human Nutrition Lifestyle, what we tend to focus on is, is nutrient-dense food. So um, how can nutrient-dense food be traced back to our ancestors? That's a great question. And, and, it's, and it's a great thing that you're doing there. You know, nutrient density is such an integral part of, of all of these conversations. Um, and I applaud you for, for doing that work. The, you know, we... How do, I, how do I start this? Because uh, it, it's a very humbling, humbling beginning for, for us as humans and also for us uh, as this, this discussion as well. We started as, and still are, incredibly weak animals as humans. We, um, we inhabit these really, you know, if, if you look uh, in comparison to other animals, these relatively large bodies and incredibly large brains, both of which require a substantial amount of nutrition to fuel properly. But at the same time, um, even though we have this incredible intelligence, um, we are incredibly weak in that we can't do much, right? We're not, we, we're not that fast, we're not that strong. We can't swim very well, we can't fly, we can't dig into the ground. If we're talking about just using our bodies, our nails, our teeth and our muscles. 
So when, if you think about how that might translate into food, we have an incredibly difficult time accessing nutrients from our environment using these really inefficient parts of our bodies. So today we make tools. We make tools, we make shovels to dig into the ground, we make ladders to climb in trees and collect things or, or scale cliffs. We make plows to you know, um, plant wheat in, in, in the fields and, and harvesters to harvest them and all these other sorts of machines that at very simple levels and at very complicated levels are incredibly powerful to allow us to overcome our physical limitations and access more and more nutrients, more environment that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. So there's, there's a piece of that that I'd like to expand on in a little while, but, but what I'd like to get to very quickly is another component of, of a nutrition that is often overlooked is that um, even when we can access all these resources from our environment, whether it's we've, we've created a shovel or digging stick to dig into the ground and access an underground storage organ, you know, root, corm, or tuber, rhizome, or it's a plow that allows us to plant wheat and harvest all this wheat, we now have sitting in front of us food that we couldn't have accessed otherwise without those tools, but that's only half the story. The other part of the story is that we have incredibly inefficient digestive tracts. So even though we can access, use these tools to access these nutrients from our environment, when we put them into our mouths, we're facing a, a real battle because we don't have the, the physical equipment inside of our bodies to safely and efficiently derive the maximum amount of nutrition from most of those foods that we eat. And this is almost across the board with everything that we eat. So if we look far back into our dietary past, millions and millions and millions of years, pre any tool at all, we're talking about ancestors who use their nails, their teeth, their, 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 their claw, you know, their, their muscles, whatever, to access nutrients in their environments and relied solely on their digestive tract to safely and efficiently um, uh, process that food and derive nutrition from it. And we're talking about very small ancestors with very small brains, low nutritional requirements that were eating limited amounts of wild vegetables, wild fruits, and insects. And that's it. And the story that I like to tell and the, and the, and the information that I like to spend a lot of time researching is what happens beginning around three and a half million years ago when we create our first tool for the first time ever, overcome our physical limitations, begin to access nutrients from our environment that we otherwise couldn't access, and most importantly, start to develop technologies that allow us to safely and efficiently obtain nutrition from those foods. That to me is the story of our dietary past. And up until about 15,000 years ago, most of the, the milestones over millions of years, um, technological milestones have been in increasing nutrient density in our food, increasing safety in our food and increasing the bioavailability in our food. That's right. Yeah, we've talked about bioavailability before on this podcast, um, and it's a, it's about the nutrients that you can access from food. And I think, uh, like you said, processing has perhaps taken away some of the bioavailability in certain foods. Um, but processing nowadays, as we think of it, is to eliminate everything that's good in food and then stack it full of other things that perhaps aren't as good, like seed oils and things which maybe we can touch on in a bit. But if you can just explain that we've always processed food right from yeah. our early days, but perhaps it's been taken far to the extremes now. Sure. And that's a really good point. In fact, I wish and I've been trying for years to come up with a, a better term than food processing, because 
processing to us, to most of us, probably to you and me, as soon as we hear the word processing, it, 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 it extends a negative connotation, right? It's, it's things like Twinkies or candy bars or whatever mass produced food. Um, but I, I haven't found a better example. In fact, that probably we should replace modern food processing with a different term because processing is, is an incredibly important part of our, of our human diet. It has been. So processing to me, uh, the processing that I'm talking about here in a positive way does three things. Increases safety in our food, increases nutrient density, and increases bioavailability. Now, it can do other things. Like, so, for example, uh, fermentation does all of those things, right? So, lacto-fermented vegetables are safer, more nutrient-dense, and more bioavailable than their, than their um, unfermented counterparts. But at the same time, it also improves flavor, it improves texture and other sort of organoleptic qualities of food, and it improves and extends shelf life. So that's great. There's those other added benefits as well. But it, they, they always make the food more nourishing for our bodies. Modern processing, really food processing, almost all of it turns that on its head. The focus is not on nutrient density or safety or bioavailability. It's actually on other things like shelf life and the ability to ship longer or making food, you know, really, really uniform. So it looks pretty on a shelf or maybe sometimes uh, with, with, with adding flavor and other sorts of things like that. But the difference is at the expense of safety, nutrient density and bioavailability. So um, I, I, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap our brains around. We've actually already thrown out a few ideas that are, are difficult for people to maybe think about. One, you know, it's certainly difficult for me to think about. We're incredibly weak species. Our digestive tracts are incredibly inefficient. We have no business eating almost every single food that we eat. Um, there's this thing called food processing that's incredibly important, but at the same time, it's like literally killing us and making us sick. And I would, ex I would also to, since we're sitting here <laughs> saying all these crazy things, um, seemingly crazy things, I would also say that we've, I like to use the word, the term domesticated. We've domesticated ourselves. We've actually outgrown our digestive tracts. And one of the hardest concepts I think to grasp, but one of the most uh, central to this entire argument about food, diet, and health, human food, diet, and, and health is that we are consuming foods that we biologically have no business eating, but we've built bodies on those foods that require those foods. So we, we're in this like really weird catch 22. We require the massive, incredible nutrition that uh, can be delivered through animal, uh, you know, animal foods, but we're not biologically equipped to, to jump on and rip apart just about, you know, most of the animals that we eat. So we require technologies to hunt, but because we created those technologies to hunt and butcher and prepare those foods and included those foods into our diets, our it supported body and brain growth to the point now we require those things. We are not biologically designed to safely consume most plants without some sort of processing, but they've been a part, many plants have been a part of our diet for literally millions of years only because we as humans do something to those foods before we put them in our mouths. And the part, you know, we, I like to say, um, we should stop focusing so much on, on what we eat and begin to focus more on how we eat. Certainly what we eat is important. Where the food comes from is important. You know, what its macronutrients, even micronutrients are, all those things are certainly important. But we as humans can't eat most of those foods without some sort of processing first. 
So the how is important. And when you start looking at the how, understanding how food is made, how it can be processed, how it used to be processed compared to how it's processed today, a whole bunch of um, food categories just become silly and, and, and insane to even discuss. And a whole new um, sort of enlightenment and, and viewpoint on food and diet and health begins to appear. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it, because a lot of people who have listened to me in the past speaking about nutrient density and things, they immediately think, oh, well, you must be in the carnivore camp because nutrient density can only be um, accessed from animal produce and things like that. But we've always had plant produce in our diet from early ancestors, as you as you know. And it's all about the fact that just because it's a plant food doesn't mean that we cannot access the nutrients. It's all about how we prepare that food and how we make sure that the, it is bioavailable to ourselves. So you talked about uh, fermentation. Is that probably the best way to access uh, the nutrients from like things like plant foods and perhaps wheat and things like that? I like to talk about fermentation for a couple of reasons. One is I believe it's a very, very early technology in our human dietary experience. Um, so that, that's one reason. It's important for that reason. It is powerful and transformative and is the basis. Fermentation, if you if you look at traditional diets around the world, and I mean real, not, not the sort of American bastardized versions of things, but real traditional diets around the world, I have never found a traditional diet that doesn't at its core have fermentation you know, as a main part of it. It chemically and physically transforms ingredients into completely different foods that are better for our bodies. It mimics a lot of what happens in other animals' digestive tracts naturally. We as humans don't have that ability, so we do it outside of our bodies before, before we eat it. And the other thing I love about fermentation is that it's incredibly accessible. No matter where you are in the world, you can, it's, it's empowering, it's accessible, it's, it's relevant. You can do it on your kitchen counter. And I don't care if we're talking about fermenting dairy and making cheese, kefir and yogurt, fermenting vegetables and making things like sauerkraut and kimchi, fermenting meat and making salamis, um, fermenting alcohol and making meads and wine, whatever it is, like you can do it in your house. And you know what? You don't have to go buy anything. You don't need any special equipment. Uh, a lot of times you can just harvest the wild bacteria and yeast from the air. And it's, it's incredible. Now, I will say um, it is not the only way, right, to process different vegetables. Uh, it is a great way to do it for many of them. There are a lot of toxins that plants have. And in fact, let me, let me start off by saying this way. Um, uh, I'm, I'm putting the finishing touches on, on a book that should pre-sale in March. I'm very excited about it. I'm working right now on the plant chapter. So it's in my, in my head. And I, literally the first sentence of the plant chapter is, plants should scare the hell out of you. That's, that's literally the first, the first line. And, and I say that obviously to, to, to get people's attention, but I mean it. Um, plants, well, we, one thing we don't necessarily realize is that plants, all plants have toxins, right? They're, they're, they, they don't move. They need to survive. They need to produce viable offspring, which is the, you know, the, the root of all evolutionary processes, right? Um, but they do it by engaging in chemical warfare with the world around them. And they do it to, to, to ward off pests and fungi and humans and predators and all sorts of things. Some of those toxins don't really hurt us. Some of them aren't a very big deal unless we uh, eat too much of them. Um, some of them even impart different flavors and even nutritional benefits at some levels. Many of them, however, will hurt us at different levels. And um, one thing you can do is have a complete avoidance of plants, which 
I don't like that idea for several reasons. One is there are nutrition, nutritional qualities that plants can deliver. Plants have been a part of our diet forever. And I, I particularly, I like plants. I mean, there's an, there's an enjoyment part of, of, of eating that we can't separate from nutrition, right? So um, I love foraging. I love the texture and flavor of different plants. The thing is, for some reason, we've been taught most of the modern world has been taught to fear animal foods, animal fats, organs, awful blood, whatever. And we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, it, almost in fear of animal foods in our diet. But at the same time, we have this sort of perception that if we want to get real healthy, you know, get, be, begin to get health, we walk into the produce section of our grocery store and shut our brains down. It's like, okay, well, if I'm healthy, I'm gonna eat plants. Some is good and more is better. And we just start loading the grocery cart without thinking about it. And that is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Again, this isn't to say we shouldn't eat plants. This is to say we should approach eating plants the way we, we should approach eating anything in our diets uh, with respect, with caution, with our eyes wide open and make sure we do the same thing our ancestors have done for millions of years, process the food to make it as safe, nourishing and nutrient and bioavailable as, as possible. And one of the easiest ways to do that is through fermentation. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I, I get a lot of people uh, saying about wheats and grains and things like that, along with uh, plant foods and saying, well, some, some people obviously say, well, look, we're not designed to eat wheats and grains and they only came in the Industrial Revolution and all that sort of thing. But you can also do a similar sort of thing along the lines of fermentation with that. I know um sourdough bread is one of your big things and uh, if you can talk us through just how uh, uh, actual grains and wheats can be nutrient dense if they're used in in a similar sort of way right so again i, I love what you said and, and i hear the same thing all the time and i hear it mostly with grains and i hear it with dairy as humans are not designed to eat grains or humans are not designed to drink dairy as adults i mean these are usually the attacks in the way uh, on, on this sort of eating um and my counter is we're not designed to eat almost everything that we eat. We're not, and, and, and I know this is gonna for a second rub everybody the wrong way uh, in, the, in the sort of ancestral dietary diet community, which I consider myself a part of. Um, we're not designed to eat meat either, right? We're, we're not, but, and, and, and a lot of times, a, a lot of anti-animal uh, in the diet people will we'll say, look at our teeth. Look at your teeth. You don't have canines the way a saber-toothed cat or the way a lion or a carnivore has, so therefore we shouldn't be eating meat. Well, my response is 3.3 million years ago, our Australopithecine ancestors struck two rocks together, created the first stone tool, and that edge of that rock that they made in less than a second is sharper and potentially even more durable, but easily replaced at least, than the teeth on many of these carnivores. We don't need those teeth because for millions of years, we've overcome the physical limitation of not having them and have been able to access animal resources with that tool. That is the same line of thinking we should have about all these different foods. No, we are not designed to eat X, Y, and Z. But if we use the things we do have, you know, these brains and modify our approach and the processing of those foods to make them as safe and nourishing as we can before we put it into our bodies, which is what humans have done forever up until recent times, then um, we can nourish our bodies uh, with, with these foods. And in fact, we've done such things. So um, 
you know, we could talk about dairy in a minute if you want, but you said sourdough bread or sourdough bread or grains, same exact thing. We are not designed to eat grains. Absolutely not. In fact, if you look at the animals that are, they have specific um, biological adaptations to eating grains. And if, you, and if you look at what they have inside of their digestive tracts, like carnivorous birds, for example, they have specialized pouches where crops, where when they eat these grains, these, they, they, the grains sit in there and actually soak and bacterially ferment in there, right? And then after they've been processed in that particular organ, they move down to a gizzard, which is like this, this organ that has rocks inside of it that they actually grind these softened fermented grains. And then it goes through the rest of their digestive tract. And if, you, if we look at that process, and then we look at the way that we can process grains outside of our bodies before we eat it, we can mimic that whole process. And we have for probably 14,000 years up until recent times. So the way bread has been made in the past, you know, a true wild from you know, wild sourdough fermented bread, we have, you know, our ancestors would capture bacteria and yeast from the air. They're naturally occurring. They're in front of our faces right now. That's on our skin. It's on the, it's on the wheat. It's on all of it. It's on the table countertops. We harness the wild bacteria and yeast and use that combination of microflora in the fermentation of those grains. So the yeast fermentation produces carbon dioxide and alcohol. The carbon dioxide is what leavens the bread. The alcohol gets burned off in the cooking process. So there you go. The bacterial fermentation um, eat the starches and chemically and physically transform those grains into something entirely different. It, uh, it deactivates the lectins, the, the gluten, the, the phytic acids on the outside, the anti-nutrients. It deactivates those and at the same time begins to, to pre-digest those grains so that our bodies have to work less hard to access the nutrition in those grains. And that, that's great. You know, we can have a, and I'm not suggesting that somebody who's not eating bread, that has no desire to eat bread should start eating bread for health purposes. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting here is that if, if you are eating bread, the model of bread making for, you know, our, our thousands and thousands of year old past produces a product that is far superior in both safety and nutrition than almost anything we can buy in the grocery stores today. Because when you, the grocery store bread that is made today, the sliced pan or the sandwich bread or whatever, only uses a yeast fermentation. All they care about is the fact that the yeast produces carbon dioxide, the bread gets leavened and it becomes soft and full of holes, then they can bake it and then they can sell it to you. There's no transformation of the gluten through the bacterial fermentation when you're just making bread with yeast. So a sourdough bread is a completely different food than the sliced pan or the sandwich bread you can buy at the grocery store. Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, when people say bread, um, everything tends to fall under the same umbrella. So you say to somebody, oh yeah, sourdough bread or, or, or white bread, and they just put it under the same umbrella of no, that's bread. But they have two totally absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. You get your white processed bread and your sourdough bread. And, and sourdough bread, like you say, that's processed properly with the bacteria and everything like that. And that's a totally different food. You're getting a lot more nutrient-dense density from it than you are your, your, your processed white bread. And I just want to emphasize on the fact that you said about the, the bacteria, that bacteria in anything that's fermented will eat away the sugars. 
And it does that process for you. So you are getting less sugars, less starch in your body by eating fermented foods. And because we promote nutrient density and things like that, we end up with a more low carb, low sugar diet. And when you say to people, oh, you can introduce bread or you can introduce plants and things like that, then they start to worry about the carbohydrate intake. But by using the ferment fermentation process, the bacteria gets to it and eats the sugars before you can. Now, you also said uh, about dairy, and this is the same in dairy, whereas um, it, the process tends to be pushed and forced with acid and things like that for supermarket cheeses and other mm. things. If you really want the best cheese, if, if you've got a problem with dairy and you think I can't have dairy in my diet, then perhaps it's not, it, it, perhaps it's more processed than what you think it's been forced rather than actually properly produced the way it should be. Right, exactly. So let me, let me just give, before we run to dairy, you brought up a, a great example. The, the, the processing is so incredibly crucial to what the final product is and, and how our body deals with the final product. So a, a great example is a grape. So most, you know, modern, first of all, modern grape does not um, reflect what, you know, the wild grapes, certainly our ancestors had access to, which were certainly smaller, uh, harder to harvest, uh, took more work, didn't deliver as much sugar and all, but regardless, a grape. So we take a, a regular like red grape from the grocery store, chock full of sugar, probably most people in the keto world, in the carnivore world, in the paleo world, in the, um, in the ancestral dietary community at all would look at that grape and consider it more of a junk food than a health food because it's just loaded with sugar. But if we take that grape and ferment it, we turn it into wine. And if we ferment it using the right processes and ferment it long enough, we can end up with a wine that is not only completely alive and full of uh, probiotics, but either very low or completely absent of sugar. And we've taken a grape, which we would have considered a, a, a junk food and turned it into wine, which depending on where you fall in some of these different categories, um, you very well may be able to make the argument you could include in, um, in a healthy diet in moderation for a lot of purposes, maybe not just to convey health, but to the social aspect of it and all. But you're talking about a low carbohydrate food that is completely different from the grape in the beginning. Then if you take that grape, that, that wine, and you ferment it in another way with an acetobator bacteria and convert the alcohol into vinegar, and you have red wine vinegar, there's, I don't know anybody in the ancestral diet community that would suggest that that isn't a good food, especially when it's completely alive. So it's not the food, the grape, okay, is one thing, but the process, first the, the yeast, and in some cases, lactic fermentation to turn it into wine, is a completely different food. And then the acetobator bacteria fermentation to turn it into, into, into vinegar transforms it into different, completely different things. Similar to the way we said about grains. And I'll say also uh, with dairy, it's the same thing. We have these arguments and I lived in, you're in the UK now. I, I lived in Ireland a couple of years ago for a year. There was a huge, um, and there still may be, um, uh, controversy over dairy, and especially in Ireland, where I mean, dairy is like, uh, you know, king, right? And they have incredible dairy there. Um, there. There was a lot of people in the vegan community that were pushing against, uh, uh, um, uh, against dairy at all. And, you know, the problem is that an argument that starts with, we should or shouldn't consume dairy as adults 
is flawed from the very beginning because you or I might be talking about, you know, a, a, a fermented raw dairy from a, from a you know, well-raised animal and somebody else could be talking about ultra pasteurized skim milk with chocolates, you know, added to the inside of it. And they're two completely different foods. So a, a very quick explanation of, you know, we, we talk a little bit about um, what granivorous birds do with grains and how we can replicate that process to make those grains safe for us before we eat them. Let's turn to, to, to infant mammals for a second to talk about dairy. When we're mammals, we're called mammals because we drink milk from mammary glands from our mothers, just like all our mammals do. When that milk comes out of the mothers, it literally comes out fermenting. It is chock full of bacteria, powerful, beneficial bacteria that are fighting, you know, doing a lot of work for us. First off, they're fighting really hard to keep that, that dairy as clean as possible and keep bad pathogens out. Those bacteria are also working to ferment that milk to transform it from milk into something that are, are incredibly young bodies and incredibly inefficient digestive tracts and actually derive nutrition from. And when we, when we drink that milk as babies and all baby mammals do this, when that milk hits our stomachs, it gets uh, impacted by several different enzymes that we produce. One enzyme, um, uh, lactase, uh, begins to break down the sugars, lactose. Um, there's enzymes that help break down the fat. There's enzymes that do different kinds of things. And there's an enzyme typically known as chymosin, which coagulates that milk and turns it into sort of a jelly-like clotted substance. And the reason that happens is because if we're, you know, infant, if all we're doing is consuming liquids, liquids pass through our digestive tracts way too quickly um, to be broken down properly and for the nutrients in those foods to be absorbed by our, by our intestinal tract. So nature has figured out if we slow it down, it'll have more time to ferment, to break down properly and for those nutrients to be absorbed by our, by our, uh, by our intestines. So this enzyme does just that. It hits it, it coagulates it, slows it down, it ferments in our bodies, it breaks down more fully and, and, it, and then we, we do this. Now, when we start to introduce solid foods, and this is for all mammals, whether you're a goat or a human, when you start eating solid foods, we cease the production of that enzyme that coagulates that milk because we're eating solid foods now. We don't, there's other things in our diets that are solid and allow us to slow things down. Um, humans, for example, many of us, most of us, right? So about 60% of human adults um, either cease or slow down the production of lactase, the enzyme that breaks down the sugars, lactose in milk. And that's where I have such a high propensity of lactose intolerance in humans. It's not that being lactose intolerant is strange, it's being lactose tolerant that's actually strange you know, in humans. And a lot of that has to do with um, how our individual um, ancestral line is. So if, if we grew up in a place like Ireland and have lived there for generation to generation, it's almost 100% um, possible that as adults, we're still producing that enzyme lactase. But Native Americans who really never had a, a dairy industry and were not drinking milk from, from other animals as adults, it's almost a 0% chance that we can we produce that enzyme in, in our bodies. So, you know, we, we look at that and then we say something like, hey, we're not designed to drink dairy as adults, but we're back to that same argument as we were about the meat and the, and the grains. No, we're not. But that's not the right question. The question is, is there a way to take this incredibly nutritious food? I mean, think about it. Milk is the, the food that nature has figured out, makes a hell of a lot of sense to provide ba all baby mammals 
at a time in their life when they have an incredibly high nutritional needs. Their brains are growing, their bodies are growing. So is there a way to take this potentially incredibly nutritious food and make it as safe and nourishing for our bodies as possible, despite our digestive tracts? And the answer is yes. And what we have to do in, you know, in, in the case of grains is mimic what's happening in herbivorous birds. In the case of dairy, it's mimic what happened in our bodies when we were designed to drink that milk. And the key thing there is the fermentation. So we take that, that milk and if we ferment it, the same thing that happened when it was slowed down in our bodies, we transform that dairy from one substance into a completely different thing. So from good high quality milk into things like kefirs and yogurts and, and, and real cheese. Um, the other, the crazy thing is too, you know, it, I, I love talking about dairy because it's the epitome of mimicking what we did as, as, as infants or what other animals do as well. Cheese makers start with, with, you know, dairy, high quality dairy. Traditional cheese makers don't add any bacteria at all to it because the culture's already in the, you know, in the raw milk. And the only thing that they add is a culture that, um, or is the enzyme chymosin, which in the cheese making world is known as rennet, which, set, which coagulates it and turns it into curds and whey, exactly what was happening in, in our stomachs. Um, and then later on they'd add salt. But other than that, they're literally mimicking what happened as infants, um, as, as baby infants. So real high quality kefirs, yogurts, other fermented beverages, there's a whole host of them, and real cheeses are the, the way we should think about consuming dairy in a, in, a, in a healthy way. There's, there are a few groups, not many around the world that I've, I've visited that drink raw milk, not many. Sambara warriors, the Maasai, they do. But I have, you know, in a traditional sense, other native groups, ancestral groups, indigenous groups don't drink milk, but many of them consume a lot of dairy. They don't sit there and pour a glass of milk and sit there and drink it or pour it on cereal. They always ferment it. I spent a lot of time on the Mongolian steppe. Dairy is, a, you know, a mainstay in the diets there. And in fact, there's a very low, despite their um, close association with dairy that they've had for a very long time, they've never really developed um, those genes that allow them to produce lact lactase as adults. But they still continue to have this incredibly close relationship with dairy that's a main part of their diet. And the reason is because they always ferment their dairy, whether they're making fermented yak butter or they make a beer out of mare's milk, <laughs> fermented mare's milk, they make all sorts of things, but it's always fermented. So if we want to have a conversation about whether or not dairy can be a healthy component in a modern human diet, I'd love to engage in it, but we have to separate the difference between what you typically have access to in the grocery store and what our ancestors were eating because they're two completely different things. That's right. Yeah, it comes back to what you say about it's how how your food is processed, not necessarily what it is you're eating, the particular food that it is like cheese or, or milk or, or a plant based food, whatever it is. It's how that food has made it there, how it's being processed. If, if more people can think about how is this food onto my plate, how has it made the process from where it's began and then all the way through the food chain to my plate, if more people can think about that, how has that process happened, rather than what is this food, then that is a better way of thinking. I know um, you've said before about shortening the uh, food chain between mm -hmm. for, for certain foods from, let's say, even animal or, or plant um, to your plate. 
And how can people sort of get that right in their minds? What do you mean by shortening the food chain? What, what do you mean? Going to a nearer grocery store? I don't know. What do you mean? <laughs> That's a great question. And I'm glad you brought it up. So, yeah, the, the question we're asking all the time, and I'll, I'll bring it back to, to start this part of it back at the beginning of our conversation, where most of us are so focused, Diet, uh, dietitians, nutritionists, uh, fitness magazines, doctors, the government agencies, individual people are so focused on what do I eat? That's what most, you know, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, all those things are focused on trying to answer that question. And I don't believe we actually really have to ask that question. And I know that seems strange, but humans are the only species on the planet that hire somebody to tell them, tell them how to eat. In fact, you know, it's such a guarded secret, right? It's supposed to be that in, in many parts of the world, in certain states in, 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 in the U.S. and in certain countries in the world, it is illegal to provide nutritional advice to another human unless you are you know, have a certain, you know, PhD or, you know, certain, certain credentials, which is insane to me, but we're the only people that are the only species that ask that question. Meanwhile, we are the sickest species on the planet. And the only species that are as sick as us are our pets or domesticated animals, which we are making sick because we mimic the problems in our diet with what we're feeding them. So that aside, other animals do a great job just relying on their senses. And, and, and if you think about why we even have senses, we have senses because they are, you know, evolutionary adaptations to a, that, that help prompt us to make the right decisions. You know, the, the two things that, that we, or the thing that we need to do as a species, every species has to do this to survive, is to reproduce and the, what, the, the results of that reproduction are viable offspring, which then in turn can reproduce. And this requires several things to fall into place. Number one, we have to have sex properly to reproduce, right? Number two, we have to be safe and, and protect ourselves and our offspring. And number three, we have to nourish ourselves and our offspring in order for that whole process to happen. And if you think about all of our senses, what they really do and when our senses are heightened and when we're actually using all of our senses all at the same time, it's during one of those three things, right? Sex is an entire body experience and we use all of our senses when it happens. And you know what, when it happens right, it feels really, really good and nature is telling us that we've done it right. And this is for all, when we're scared or when we're in danger, all of our senses are heightened, right? And, and, and again, it's, we're using everything, you know, the, the hairs on our arms stand up, we're listening intently, we're looking around, we can almost taste the fear this is, this is uh, evolutionary responses to try and keep ourselves and our family safe. And then finally with food, you know, food is such a sensual experience, not in a sexual way, but in, in, in a way that when we do it and do it right, it involves all of our senses. It is another evolutionary adaptation to allow us to make sure we're eating properly. So I fully believe if we are in tune with our bodies, and, and our senses and our reactions to food and are, and are presented with real food, nobody has to tell us how to eat. We'll make the right decisions, right? Every time that we sit down from a meal, every time, I'm sorry, we get up from a meal, we should feel better than when we sat down. We shouldn't feel hungry. We shouldn't feel sick. We shouldn't feel bloated. We shouldn't feel any of those things. We should feel satiated, content, and happy when we do it properly. So I know that's a little bit of a, a pie in the sky, idealistic way to view it, but let's go with that for just a second. So just like every other animal on the planet, we, I believe we have the, um, the sensory adaptations 
to be able to decide for ourselves how we should eat as long as we're in tune with our body's responses to food and faced with real food. The difference is we have out eaten our digestive tracts. We require food that needs to be processed before we eat it. So we shouldn't be asking people what to eat, what we need help with and what has been passed down through generations and generations and generations and generations for millions of years from parents and grandparents and children to grandchildren um, through tribes and clans and, and, and all sorts of uh, different ways that humans have figured out how to arrange themselves is how to eat how to process, how to access and to process the foods in individual environments to make them as safe and nourishing as possible for our bodies. That's what's broken. That's what's missing in the modern discussions about diets. So that said, I, I love the fact that everyone is talking about what to eat. We should continue to do that. But we need to find mechanisms that allow people to understand how the food is made and, and empower them to learn how to make those foods themselves. And that begins with what you mentioned, shortening the food chain. Now, some of this was deliberate, some of it was just by coincidence, some of it was by accident, but at every stage, over, I believe, since the beginning of the agricultural revolution, every step towards progress that most people consider it, that we've taken has, um, has certainly freed members of our society up to engage in the arts and in poetry and in other sorts of professions and things, right? But at the same time, every one of those steps has distanced us from our food, where it comes from and how it's prepared. You know, when we started growing food, uh, we stopped or at least slowed down or, or, or uh, a lot of the hunting and gathering. So we, weren't, we went from food acquirers to food producers. And when we started producing food in excess, members of the community were no longer even food producers, they were, they were just consumers. At the Industrial Revolution, you know, many people, you know, a lot of the population turned into consumers and were not even food producers anymore. And as we've seen over, um, over the past several decades, especially, less and less people are farming. There's a lot of big corporations that are doing all the farming. Everybody else has become food consumers. And, we've, and we're not even cooking anymore. Like we've gone from you know, hunting, gathering, and preparing all of our food. And even if we weren't the ones actually preparing it, we smelled it, saw it out of the corner of our eye. You know, our parents might've been doing it to people who are buying already made foods. And that disconnect has, uh, you know, put a shield, put a, put a curtain between us and our food in some very, very negative ways. So one of the things that I advocate is, um, listen, I, I, I'm a big hunter. I am a big forager. I think those are incredibly powerful ways to directly reconnect with our food and anybody who has access to being able to do a little bit of backyard foraging, a little bit of fishing, clamming, hunting something, do it because it, it, there, there is no stronger way to reconnect with the diets that built us as humans than that. There's no stronger way to reconnect with our environment and, and all of those things. But I know some of that isn't accessible to everyone. What I would say is the number one thing that uh, if you want to educate yourself on how to feed yourself and your family the most incredibly safe and nourishing diets possible is, is to get back in the kitchen, is, is to cook. Now, what I'm going to suggest is going to sound really strange for just a moment, but please, please bear with me. Um, I, I, I tend to go a little overboard on, on these things, and my family will certainly um, contest to that as well, uh, or attest to that. Um, I have made it one of my life's missions to learn to make everything that my family eats 
entirely from scratch. And so, you know, in, in fact, almost all of our meals that we eat as a family today have been made entirely inside of our house. You know, in addition to hunting and gathering, we do a lot of butchering, curing, fermenting, all the food processing in the house. And, 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 and most of our meals, um, we can point to say, you know, no two ingredients are put together by somebody outside of this house. It was all done here. And I mean, down to the mayonnaise and the mustards and the, and the everything. Um, and I'm gonna suggest the same thing for the people listening to this. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that you need to do that for every one of your meals for the rest of your life. What I'm suggesting is, if you really wanna learn about your food, you wanna learn about the how of your food and the way that it's processed, the way it should be processed, the way it could be processed, and the way it's processed for most of the examples you would get in a grocery store or restaurant, then take that food and cook it entirely from scratch just once. Now, it's not the, um, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up for us in America, so that's a big deal here. And a lot of people strive very hard to do a lot of cooking for Thanksgiving. A lot of people do these things for holidays, for Easter or Christmas. Um, those are great. Um, you know, spending a lot of time making those meals is, is wonderful. But from a nutritional level, it doesn't really do anything. Changing one meal a year doesn't change your health. What changes your health for you and your family are to take those foods that you eat all the time, every day, several times a week, many times a month. Those are the foods, and no matter how boring they may be, whether it's mayonnaise, whether it's bread, whether it's hamburgers and hot dogs, I don't care what it is. You need, you know, it's imperative that you find out how those foods are made. Take those foods, grilled cheese and tomato soup, pizza, tacos, I don't care what it is. Learn how to make that food entirely from scratch and do it at least one time. Even if you completely mess it up, even if your dog won't even eat it, you uh, have, you know, are a completely different, you, know, you have a completely different viewpoint after having done that than you did beforehand. You are, you know, it's a sensual experience that allows you to use all of your senses and all of your skills to transform raw materials into this finished product that you can't read about, you can't watch on a YouTube video, you have to do it yourself. And even if you, you know, it'd be great if you decide to make that for the rest of your life and you know, you're using that, that's wonderful. But that one-time experience can be just as powerful even if you never make it again. Because when you go into the grocery stores, you've, you've sort of disarmed the marketers and the, and the food production companies and, and the advertisers, you can see through all those things. You can, you can look at, you know, once you make sourdough bread for real, once you can walk into the bread aisle in the grocery store turn over the packages and all the the bs is now completely clear like you know exactly what you're looking at so um by doing this again great if you do it and do it all the time also great if you do it once and then now walk into the grocery store and do something just as important support you know buy the right food the best options in the grocery stores or restaurants for yourself and your family that's, that's awesome. But at the same time, by doing that, you are voting with your paycheck. You're using your money to support the people, the food manufacturers that are doing it right. And that is incredibly tra transformative and powerful on literally a worldwide scale. We've, you know, the, the, the food producers, the grocery stores, they don't care about our health. They care about making money. They care about you know, their investors and their investors making money. And even somebody like Walmart, we have asked and asked and asked for organic food. Walmart, they're the leading supplier of organic food in the world. Now, some of it we can talk about, but you know, the fact that people asking for a certain kind of food was heard 
at a corporate level like Walmart and a change was made. And I'm convinced it's, it's a, that groundswell, that grassroots effort that can provide that. And it starts with cooking in your kitchen. And so one of the things that we're working on hard at, at Eat Like a Human is empowering people to do just that. And we've just launched, as of a couple of weeks ago, a, a series that's going to grow into a lot, lot larger, a series of, of, of virtual classes. Um, we have sourdough, we have a sourdough class, we have a fermented dairy class. This Friday, we're launching a, a, a cheese class. Um, there's butchering classes and fermentation classes to come very shortly. You know, the idea is, listen, learn to do this. You know, we, we take these classes, uh, we, we, we present them in a way that is accessible for you in your own home kitchen with the most basic of tools and ingredients um, and walk you through the process. And at the same time, weave in stories about traditional indigenous groups around the world that are still engaged in these practices um, and, you know, uh, information about tools and equipment, information about prehistory. But this to me is an empowering way to do exactly what you said, remove links from the food chain, shorten that food chain and really nourish your, yourself and your family. Yeah, that's great. I was smiling away when you said that because uh, the first time I tried to make homemade burgers, I don't think my dog was even interested. I put far too much, <laughs> far too much wow. spice and herbs and <laughs> yeah, no, everything in there. So, but yeah, I continued to do it and they just got better and better and we, we do it all the time now. But I think anybody out there who's thinking, oh no, I can't, I can't do that. You know, just try, just, just start off and just try, go, go get your uh, organic, uh, you know, your grass fed, uh, ground beef and just give it a go just give it give it a, a try and then you start to realize like you said um what little can go into it really i mean you go to your grocery store or whatever and you turn over a packet of beef burgers and some of them have a list as long as your arm of what's in a beef burger and you're starting to think hang on a minute you know <laughs> i make it at home i use four ingredients that's it you know so right. why why do they have this uh, super long list of things and I said earlier about seed oils and you often find even even simple foods like let's say let's say beef burgers you turn it over and they are just seed oil after seed oil vegetable oils and and even some organic produce like you mentioned organic produce now are saying oh yeah this is great because we have an organic seed oil in here and uh, seed oils you start to wonder when you're making your own food like you say why are these seed oils present and and I often yeah. say about these seed oils, you know, they are mass produced things. We do not need them in our diets. Firstly, where do they come from? Why are they in so many foods? And why don't we need them in our nutrition? Uh, uh, absolutely. So, you know, the, the seed oil and animal fat controversy, is, I'm so glad it's finally like really rising to the surface. I grew up, I was born in, in the 70s. And, you know, as you know, the 70s and 80s were like demonizing seed or demonizing animal fats. I grew up on, on margarine. Um, uh, you know, we, we got rid of bacon fat, you know, those sorts of things. And, and, and because that's what we were told to do. And finally, we're starting to have a real conversation about it. So uh, it, it's true when, when, when I have a question about diet and health or food, my default is to look to the past. You know, my default is to see, you know, how long has something been in our dietary past? Um, what have, how did we approach these things in, in our dietary past? And how is that different from today? And certainly, um, you know, we could have an entire week on just nut and seed oils, but real quick from my perspective, um, we have evidence for accessing marrow, which is an incredible 
you know, animal fat inside the bones of animals. Um, it's nutritious, it's satiating, it's delicious when prepared properly. Um, we, have in, we have archeological evidence for our ancestors intentionally accessing marrow from other animals for 3.4 million years. That's a long time. We have evidence, now there's a lot of controversy over when uh, we think people started, our ancestors started to hunt. Um, I am of the camp that it began around 2 million years ago at the same time we started um, controlling fire. Um, at that moment, if we're, uh, we see a huge increase in body and brain size in our ancestors. Uh, and I believe that was supported from two different things happening. One is our ability to cook our food, which is in, in, certain, in certain applications, very freeing of nutrients for our bodies, right? And, very, and, and, and helps make some foods more nutrient dense. But the other thing that happens is the difference between scavenging and hunting is, is huge. Our ancestors around three and a half million years ago up until they started to hunt, the only access to animals they had was through scavenging. So a predator would kill another animal on the savanna. The predator would rip that animal apart, gorge itself on the most nutritious, nutrient-dense, bioavailable parts, which are the bloods, the organs, and the fat, maybe eat some of the meat, go off and digest that food. And then when during that period of time when the predator was, was resting or napping or digesting, it was a perfect time for all the scavengers to come in. So things like the ancestors, the buzzards and hyenas and that, but also our ancestors, when they started to make those tools would run in and hack off pieces of meat, take the bones and all, and all that. Um, that was scavenging. When we start hunting, we're the predators and we, you know, it's a completely different system. We now have access to the most nutrient dense bioavailable parts that the scavengers had taken for the million and a year's half earlier. We get to eat the organs of blood and the fat. Um, so, and we, again, in turn, we see this huge jump in body and brain size. And I'm convinced that a lot of it has to do with that fat. Animal fats have been in our diets literally for millions of years. Nut and seed oils have been in our diets for a little bit over a hundred years, right? So, um, and if you look at the correlation between, um, you know, you, and, and I'm sure you know this and your, and your listeners know this, but, you know, obesity, coronary heart disease, even cancer rates as, as, as we start consuming more and more nut and seed oils, you know, they, they go hand in hand. And, and some of it, you know, the, you can look at the data and, and, and figure out several different things for yourself, but there's no doubt that animal fats have been on a diet forever. We start taking them out, replacing them with something else. And it's wrecking havoc, not only on our own bodies, but also on the environment. Um, you know, as, as we're literally throwing away animal fat, we're, you know, raping the environment for, for nut and seed oils uh, with all sorts of byproducts from that industry. And it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, it comes back to like what you said earlier, the producers of these things don't care about your health. They're just producing it because it's cheap and it's easy for them to do. It's easy for them to access. It's easy for them to get more product out there for them to sell. They're not bothered about you eating it and, and not bothered about your health or what it's doing to your health. They're just bothered about making money at the end of the day. And right. uh, yeah, so I wonder if you can talk to us a bit then about more nose to tail eating because you say there's a lot of waste out there and not only is the wasteful food in general but when we get down to animal produce a lot of people just stick to muscle meats and um, the things they know like um, 
steaks and ribeyes and things like that but we're losing basically half the animal there you talked about the bone marrow that our ancestors uh, went for and and when we was getting first access to the animals getting the blood and the liver and the suet and the the prized things like that but nowadays it seems like we're missing out on that can we bring that back into our diets yeah i i think uh, and i don't even think it's a question of of, of can i think it's more of a statement is we must, and, and we must for, for a lot of different reasons. You know, I, I understand, and in many ways, and this is gonna sound strange in the beginning, especially for, for probably most of your audience, but um, I respect, not necessarily the way they go about doing it, but the, the motives behind much of um, what the, the vegan and vegetarian communities stand for. I mean, they, for the most part, it's one or more of three reasons that people become vegan or vegetarian for nutritional reasons, for um, environmental reasons, sustainability, and for ethical reasons. Um, and all of those things are incredibly admirable um, causes. I fully believe that I, I think um, the information that they've been they've been fed to make the decisions on how they um, implement right, uh, the, their decisions is, is misinformed, but I completely applaud the reasons behind the way that they feel. I fully believe that if you took the leader, you know, a, a, you know, a, a huge proponent of, of, of the vegan lifestyle, huge proponent of the vegetarian lifestyle, and somebody that thinks about um, food, diet, and health, sustainability, and ethical treatment of animals in, in the way that I do and many others do, and we all sat down at the table and we could all get over egos and we could all get over and have a real conversation, we'd realize that we had like 95% of things in common. Um, I choose to implement um, the way that I feed myself and my family and my community um, in terms of nutrition, sustainability and ethical treatment of animals in a different way. Instead of turning my back on it um, and, and suggesting it either hasn't happened or shouldn't happen, I face it head on and say, listen, this is the way that we have treated the animal resource for millions of years. This is something that if we get back to it, it is a heck of a lot more nutritious, ethical, and sustainable than the way that we deal with animals in our diets today. Um, if you look at the archeological record, and if you look at indigenous and traditional groups around the world now that still include animals in their diets, they eat upward of 95, 96% of that animal by weight as food. You know, and so, you know, they kill an animal, they literally start on one end and eat to the other end. I mean, that's sort of, they eat the entire thing or, and or use pieces of it for, for other, you know, important implements and, and tools that they need. And then move on and kill another animal and do the same thing over again. And I know that's a very simplified way of looking at it um, and it doesn't hold up all across the board, but in almost every case, it's something like that. Now, if you compare that to the way that we treat animals and eat animals in the modern world, it's a completely different thing. I mean, here we are trying to, you know, in the ancestral diet community say, okay, you know, we're gonna eat well and, and we're gonna eat animals. And for some of us, that means we go buy a T-bone steak three times a week. You know, one cut of meat from the same animal over and over again is nothing like what our ancestors were doing when they were consuming animals. You know, the, uh, on average in America, 55% of a pig by weight and 50% of a cow by weight make it to the grocery store shelves, which has incredible implications for 
not only what we have access to uh, nutritionally from animals, but also what our minds believe is food. Like we, we have been so conditioned you know, by what we see on the grocery store shelves. That's food, that's food, that's food. And, and if it's not in the grocery store, by default, we think, well, that's not food. Like it's, if it's food, it would be in the grocery store. If it's not, then we consider it something else. And unfortunately, awful or you know, blood fat organs for the most part, do not appear on the grocery store shelves any longer. And for most of us, it's out of our conscious. But you know, to somebody like me who fully believes that hunting and eating the entire animal and, and, and the access that hunting gave us to blood, fat, and organs literally helped build us as a species, something's wrong, right? So um, we need to get back to it. And if you, know, if you raise an animal, if an animal is raised, in you know wonderful conditions as best as they can be slaughtered humanely and almost all of that animal is used as food for people to nourish themselves and their families to me that sits very very well to raise an animal and you know mass produce an animal slaughter it in inhumane conditions either you know, only use half of that animal as food is a completely different model. And unfortunately, that's the model that most of us have access to unless we're raising animals ourselves or hunting or live close enough to a really good butcher or farm to access those. So I, when I say we must, we must, I mean, think about this. If we're having conversations about how to feed the growing population in the world and basing a lot of this on calculations, well, you know, th this many cows can feed this many people. And if we're gonna feed this many people, we need this many more cows and start, and, and and we're basing all these calculations on, first of all, feeding, feeding animals like cows diets are not designed to eat and only eating half of that animal, then the math is flawed from the beginning. If we instead step back and said, wait, we, if we approach that animal in a different way, we can more than double the nutrition coming out of every single animal, not only in quantity, but also in quality. I believe meat is one of the least nutritious parts of an animal. Uh, the blood, the fat, and the organs are the most nutritious parts. So if, if we're saying we're eating half a cow, we're eating less than half of the nutrition that that animal can provide. So a simple, now I say simple, it's, it's, a, it's a huge leap in a mindset change, but a simple, something as simple as a mindset change can completely overnight transform an entire industry from one of, of, of um, you know, what it is to one that is the most nourishing, sustainable and ethical possible. And again, this starts, just like I said earlier, this starts in our kitchens. I taught a freshman class at the college yesterday um, and the focus of the class was a topic very similar to this. And I used a chicken as an example. Now I know it's a little bit different over in your part of the world, but um, it's very difficult in most of America to go into a grocery store and find a whole chicken anymore. It's nothing but chicken breasts in a package, chicken thighs in a package, you know, and, and whatnot. And we can't go into a grocery store any longer and even see anything that resent. And again, in, in America, I know it was different in Ireland and I, and I applaud the way they're still doing it. Um, but you don't see shoulders of animals anymore. You see slices and cuts of steaks. You see ground up meat. You see chicken breasts in a package with pictures of farms on the package. And that's what you see. There's no, you know, that link between animal and meat animal and food is not there any longer. It's just food and food and food. It's no different than the, than the cereal aisle. Um, but bringing in a whole chicken into your house, cutting it up with a knife 
in your kitchen, even if your kids are in the other room, and I know this may sound like a huge stretch, but I fully believe this. Now, if, even if they're watching TV in the other room, they look over in the kitchen and they see something that resembled legs. They see something that had skin. They, they hear the knife scrape against bone. Now, all of these things, they're subtle and they're um, you know, maybe subconscious, but that link between life, animal, death, food, nourishment is, is uh, conveyed every single time that happens. So there's this really incredible connection that happens when you're doing any level of butchering in your own house. Um, at the same time, it's incredibly economical. The chicken that I had yesterday for the, to, to, to do with the students uh, cost about $20. It was a gorgeous local um, uh, organic chicken, $20. Most of the mass-produced chickens that you can get at the grocery store are somewhere between 6 and $7. So this chicken was three times more expensive than the mass-produced chicken. But when we took it apart properly and walked through all the different things I can do with just that one chicken, it went from one meal to about three and a half meals when you included things like the bone broth and the soup we can make out of it, and, you know, all the different things that, that, that we can do. So um, plus the inside, they'd put the liver and the heart and the neck and the, and the, and the um, gizzard back into the chicken. So we had all those things. We made pate. We did a bunch of different stuff. So, um, you know, I understand where a lot of people would suggest that, oh my gosh, this sounds like a pie in the sky, great idea about animals, but my gosh, the local organic animal, you know, chickens or pigs or cows or whatever are so expensive. Well, they are, and they're expensive for a reason. And they should be that expensive because people are working incredibly hard to raise those animals properly, um, take care of them properly, sort of all that. Um, but at the same time, if you take a couple of links out of that food chain and insert yourself a little bit closer to the source of that food, then you save a lot of money and you increase the nutrition that you have in your house and you increase the versatility of what you can do with that one animal. We bring pigs, half a pig, and, and these are some of the videos that we're putting together right now, but you know, obviously chicken videos, but, but a pig, uh, we, we regularly take a half a pig and slap it on the counter in, our, in, our, in the middle of our kitchen and, and we butcher that pig. That half a pig, half of a local pig, and it's a good sized pig, cost me $135. It will feed my family for a month. And we make pate and we cook the heart and we make ham and we make bacon and we make pork rinds and we render the fat and we eat the kidneys. And we're talking about a, a, a recent $135 has allowed me to feed my family you know, for a month with incredible food I have complete control over. And you know what? The skill set, I know it sounds so foreign, but the skill set to butcher a pig is not that incredible of a skill set. I mean, it, it's wonderful and the people that do it well are incredible artisans. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's entirely possible for you to do the same thing in your kitchen with just a little bit of instruction. That's right. And it's like you say, you can easily start along that that road by starting just with a chicken. There's so many people. Yeah. I know it is different here in the UK and you can buy full chickens in the supermarket, but you often find people overlooking them and they just go straight for the breasts. The breasts probably, uh, let's say, two pounds, two English pounds. Yet the chickens maybe five and they think it's too expensive. But if you just realize that you could make two, three, four different meals out of that, you know, then it becomes more economical in the long run. And if you can just turn your mindset just to get away from those breasts, I mean, 
yeah, the breast meat and, and its protein and things like that, but it's far less nutrient dense than the meat on the bone of a chicken or, or like you say, the chicken liver and, and things like that. You're getting far more nutrition from a whole chicken than you are just those breasts. So just start on the process to make it into, make those breasts into a real animal, you know, go, go a bit further, make it into a chicken. And same with your bacon, like you say, with your pig, I don't expect everybody to go out there and get half a pig. Because then you'll get people saying, oh, well, you're not respecting the animal and all that. But I'll say you're respecting the animal more because you're using more of the animal. And people who just eat, just eat the muscle meats of the animal, they're the ones not really respecting the animal. If you're eating the liver, the heart, the brains, the bone marrow, the blood, you are really then respecting the animal because you're getting from it everything that it could possibly give. And I know you've spent time with tribes uh, uh, in Africa and places like that. And that's what they do. They respect every single little bit of the animal. I mean, some people you speak to and you say, oh, yeah, I went to this tribe and, and all he wanted to talk to me about was the, this biggest uh, meal he managed to feed his family, you know, from this animal. He caught this animal and he managed to feed this whole family biggest meal. And it was the best day of their lives because they respected the life of that animal and what it was to give them. So tell us a little bit about um, when you went to see the tribes, because I know you included your whole family in that as well. Sure. Yeah, we spent a lot of time um, in, in Africa and in Asia and South America with, with different groups learning, again, that, that whole how piece, right? How do they butcher? How do they cook? How do they detoxify? How do they do you know, certain kinds of things? And I, I'm fascinated by um, how different groups butcher animals, because it says a lot about um, what you know what part of the animals they value what it says a lot about respect it says a lot about taboos and religion and culture in general i mean you can you could tell a lot about um about a culture when you look at how they butcher and how they take apart and how they process an animal and what they eat and what they don't eat and if that's true then I, we have a lot to learn in in, in, the, in the modern world um but so uh you know great example I was with the hadza in uh in tanzania the oldest hunter-gatherer group in the world and there was one night where um they had killed a a genet cat you know one of these tree dwelling decent sized decent sized cats and the the very the, the two things happened that night and it was late at night when when this happened they're sitting around a fire in the middle of nowhere and they um two th i'll never forget it they did two they opened up the, they opened up the cat and pulled out the organs, and we uh, at the moment feasted on the organs, you know, cooked right on the coals in the fire. The the meat they saved for the next day so that everybody could share it together. Um, it was it was more there, but but um, there's several reasons why the organs get eaten first. One is because they're the most nutritious and the most satiating, but also because um, they'll go bad more quickly. It's much easier to preserve meat or store meat than it is to preserve um, to preserve organs. The second thing they did, which I thought was fascinating, they took the tail, um, they pulled the tail up, took a knife at the base of the tail, and um, they started to cut the tail off, but included all the skin up in, in about a two-inch wide swath all the way up to the neck. And I asked them what they were doing there, and that's they used that to decorate their bows. So I mean, the two the, the two very thoughts, and I actually have have the bow that they that they made with it. Um, that he decorated with it. The, you know, the first initial thought was, oh my gosh, we got this animal, we're gonna eat the organs. That's the first initial thought, um, which, which I absolutely loved. When we were in Mongolia, um, it, was, it was fascinating. Uh, we, 
we ended up in Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital city of, of Mongolia. And we went to this, one of the first nights we were there, we went to this incredible restaurant, this high-end, beautiful restaurant, went in there and ordered the two top things on their menu. One was the horse organ platter and one was the, the, the meat dish. I forget exactly how it translated. So here we are at this big table and these two huge serving dishes come out and they take the lids off. I mean, this was a nice restaurant. These two lids come off. And I can't convey strongly enough to everybody listening the difference between those two platters. They were um, plated differently. They were dressed differently. They were treated entirely differently, but in the opposite way you would think. The, the meat was, they opened up the lid and I just remember gray and white. I mean, it was, it, it was literally chunks of fat and meat and, and bone all fist-sized chunks just all piled together. You didn't know what animal it came from. You didn't know what part of the animal it came from. That was it. The horse organ platter looked like it came out of a five-star restaurant. You, you, you know, each organ was treated differently. It looked different. It was plated beautifully. It had herbs on it. I mean, it, it was amazing. And I thought that was a little bit strange, but okay. So weeks and weeks later, we're out in Northern Mongolia and I was part of a, uh, of a yak butchering I, I was watching, I wasn't part of it. I was watching um, this guy, it was time for him to kill one of his yaks and he invited his neighbors. And this was a big deal because the neighbors lived like seven miles away, right? So these neighbors came in on horses. There were three men, it was three men and, and the, the owner's um, wife. And they lived in a gear, a big yard out there. Um, and I'm gonna describe this process. And it blew my mind when I saw how this happened. And then it made complete sense of what I experienced in that restaurant weeks earlier. So they, one of the men took a huge hammer, like a sledgehammer, hit this um, huge yak between the eyes with this expert shot, dropped this animal in its tracks. Um, they, turned, they turned the animal over on its back um, with his legs in the air. They, they cut the neck very quickly and collected all the blood, which they were gonna use obviously. Then they, when they started to open up the yak, they did something different than is usually done when people are gutting an animal. So typically when you gut an animal, you gum up the, the soft part of the belly, make one single slit and get all the organs out, right? And then because for people that are approaching the animal that way, what they're after is the meat. It's like, get the organs out so I can get at the part that I want the meat. These guys did something completely different. They took, like they cut around the rib cage and pulled off like a shield. Like it looked like an autopsy. And they took it off in one big uh, thing. And these three men were working with knives like they were surgeons that had worked in the operating room together for two decades, right? They were in tune. It was beautiful to watch this process. So they, they cut that off. They exposed the entirety of, 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 the, of the cavity all the way from the heart down to the, down to the intestines. They laid a tarp down, a big piece of cloth underneath the legs at the bottom. Um, they reached up really high, cut the trachea, and very carefully pulled all the organs out in one big mass onto this tarp, very carefully. Um, and then the wife comes out, ear to ear grin, super big smile. Um, she took the gallbladder and fed it to the dog. And uh, then took, that's the only part of the animal they didn't eat was the gallbladder. And then she took the intestines, very happily walked off to another part of the property where there was this mound I saw, you know, for a very flat area. I did, I did earlier, I'd seen this mound. And that mound was the frozen 
contents, I'm sorry, the stomach and the intestines she took of the stomach and the, uh, and the intestines. She walked over there and she literally cleaned out the stomach, cleaned out the intestines and then went back into gear. I mean, it was cold. Man. It was like 40 degrees below zero. It was incredibly cold. She goes into gear. Um, once the, we returned to these three men butchering this yak, the organs were out. They literally dropped the knives and picked up saws and axes. And they continued to butcher this animal with saws and axes. And they produced what I noticed in that restaurant, these fist-sized chunks of meat, fat, and gristle, and bone. They produced that there. They didn't, they didn't take out the loin. They didn't take out the steak over here. They didn't do that. It was all the same to them. Not that it wasn't important, but it didn't have that same status or quality that the organs did, that they, that they treated so very carefully. And they ate those organs right away that day. They took the stomach and they ferment yak butter in the stomach. They use the intestines, they fill it with meat and make these sausage-like things that they hang and, and air dry. But what was fascinating to me was those, uh, that family out on the Mongolian steppe did exactly, produced in front of me exactly what we experienced in that restaurant that conveyed the same message. These organs are prized. The meat is valuable, but isn't the same thing as these organs, which is the exact opposite of the way most of us eat today. Yeah, and I think that's just proof to the fact that we don't need telling what we should be eating or even how we should be eating it. We know instinctively, those tribes know instinctively that that's the most nutrient-dense food. That's the stuff that you should be putting in your body. That's where your human body is going to thrive on if you're eating those particular produce from the animal. I mean, you can get lots of different things as well from the animal. It's not just just the meat. I mean, I've watched your, um, you was on the great human race on the natural uh, National Geographic channel, and I've watched that and, and that was a, a great watch I'll urge anybody listening who hasn't watched that to go back and watch it you can get it on YouTube <laughs> on Netflix you. and all that because it was great it was just proof that that showed how humans evolved and how they survived not only because they were foraging for nutrition and and things like that, but also using animals to get things like the sinew out of the animals to make tools with and their hides and, and certain things like that. The whole lifestyle and the whole ethos of evolution with, within those programs that he did was, was great to see. And I mean, even something that just came to my mind then was the uh, dead salmon. <laughs> you was um, slightly late getting to the river and all the salmon yeah. were dead. Yet it wasn't a failure. You know, the, the humans of the time, the our ancestors didn't deem it as a failure. They just thought, right, OK, so the, these salmon dead were too late here. You know, we need to make sure we move on, make sure we get ahead of the curve and make sure we can do something about it. I mean, it's just a, a kind of evolution in a way. And, and looking back at our ancestors in a way, it's all about problem solving and all about what's the best way we can go and problem solve and, and make sure one, we're getting the best nutrition, and two, we're able to implement it into our lifestyle. And like you, you say, when you've visited all these tribes and things, it's, it's not only about the nutrition they're getting, they get, they're making sure they get the, the most nutrient-dense nutrition, and nobody's telling them this. Nobody's there at the sidelines saying, make sure you eat that liver, make sure you get that heart, that's the best stuff. They know instinctively what to do and how to get it, and then implement it into their lifestyle, however different that lifestyle is between the tribes. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. And, and, I, and I will say, uh, you made very, very good points. Um, I will say this is not, I, I hope this conversation doesn't come off as um, anti-meat or anti-vegetable, because it's not that at all. Um, it is, let's understand where all of these things 
fall into place and how we can take um, steps to make sure no matter if it's a plant, if it's meat, if it's liver, if it's whatever, how we can take those different ingredients and make them as safe and nourishing for our bodies as humanly possible. Because after all, that's what we as humans do. Um, so um, we eat a ton of meat in our house. We eat a decent amount of vegetables, but it's always with an open mind that, okay, when I'm eating meat, you know, and, and part of this comes from having hunted my whole life and having done so much butchering, but, but um, uh, you know, I'm always thinking, okay, if, if an animal, if a wild animal was killed in the past or if a deer was killed, right, and, and you ate that entire animal, there's a certain amount of, of, of meat that would be in my family's diet, a certain amount of fat that would be in their diet, and a certain amount of organ meats and other things that would be a, a whatever in, in, um, in the diet as a result of that kill. Now, we are modern people, right? We call ourselves a modern Stone Age family, but we are modern people living in a modern world. My, my son plays soccer, my daughter plays uh, field hockey and started the sourdough bread business. My other daughter um, works at a cat colloquium. Like there's, we're doing a lot of things as a family. So we're not, I don't wanna paint the picture that all of the food that we eat is um, hunted and gathered. A lot of it is, but we, we go to the farmer's market, we go to the local butcher, we you know we do other things as well. So being connected to the composition of an animal and what really is in there and about how much liver and fat and meat and all this are, are accounted for in different places. I'm always conscious of, okay, we bought some beef over here. We bought a steak over here. We bought this, um, you know, what does that represent and how much, you know, sort of liver and heart and fat and other sorts of things should be included in our diet, uh, both for nutritional purposes, but also to sort of round out that entire experience. Again, something died, let's make sure that we're using as much of it as possible, whether it's because we've butchered it in our house or because we've bought those components at the store or ordered a certain way on, on, on a menu. You know, the, the point I'm trying to make is the closer you can connect to your food source um, through extreme things like hunting and foraging, less extreme things like maybe backyard chickens with eggs and, and you know butchering in your house to just simply cooking from scratch in your kitchen. All of those things empower you to look at your food, your diet, your health, and your place in the larger context of the world and environment community in some really powerful ways. And that's what we need to do. So eat vegetables, just process them the right way, eat meat. Just realize that there's a certain amount of, of, of organs and blood that should be a part of your diet if you're you know, really sort of trying to represent the way meat was consumed in the past and to eat as, in my mind, as ethically and sustainably and nourishing as possible. Yeah, and that's great. Everything, every time I talk about um, nailing down your nutrition and nailing down all your nutrient density and things like that, I, I never try and scare people off by saying, look, you've got to absolutely get it perfect. You've got to make sure you, your nutrition is 100% this, 100% that. What it is, it's, it's about refining it and taking out all those processed foods and trying, like you say, bring it into your home, try and cook it in your own kitchen. Make sure around about 90, 95% of your nutrition is handled and cooked by yourself. Make sure that 90 to 95% of your nutrition is nutrient dense. You are getting all the good things from it. Then that other 5%, that other 10%, you know, nobody's perfect. Just make sure that you can, because we've all got families, we've all got kids, you know, kids will be kids and things like that. They'll have the chocolate bars and, and, and sweets and mm -hmm. Halloween's just gone. So, you know, they get a few <laughs> treats, don't they? Yeah, but, absolutely. you know, but, but 
that aside, the rest of your nutrition, if the rest of your nutrition, your 90%, 95% of your nutrition can be nutrient dense, can be lower carb, then your body is going to thank you by, by the way of thriving. Now, so yeah. many people today are just on survival food, just in survival mode. That's not how we want to be. That's not how I want to live. You want to make sure your body can thrive. So I really thank you for today. And I've just looked at the time and realized we've been talking for ages. So I value value your time. And um, if I I mean, we've touched on on it quite well here. And I've got a a last little bullet point here. We've gone through them all without me even really looking, which is great. But I've got last little bullet point here. And I'd like you to answer it if you can. It's just what can we do tomorrow that we didn't do today to give us one step ahead into becoming more nutrient dense in our own nutrition? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Well, you, you, you didn't give me that ahead of time. It would have been great to think about for a couple <laughs> Sorry. of days. But I think, no, I think it's better to put me on the spot, actually. I know my, my, my knee jerk reaction uh, is I'll say two things. Number one is get back in your kitchen. Number one, by far. Um, that's where your education comes from. That's where your empowerment comes from. That's where your inspiration comes from. After all, the work you do in there is one of the most important things you can do for yourself, for your family, for your community, and for your environment. I mean, you are making incredible, you are starting incredible change right there in your kitchen. Um, that's that's number one. Number two, I would say source one step closer to your food just take that step and again i know some of the things we've talked about today for some people sounded oh yeah that's that's doable for some people they're like oh my god i'm never putting a half a pig on on my cat that's well out of the realm i'm never going hunting and that's fine that's not what i'm suggesting if everybody took one step closer to the source of their food it would have profound effects globally so uh, you know what i usually say is if you're buying chicken breast at the store then go buy a whole chicken if you're going, if you're buying whole chicken from the store, then buy that chicken from the farmer's market or better yet, the farm. If you're already doing all those things, then maybe think about going fishing or going hunting or something where you're actually sourcing directly. Uh, there's nobody in between you and where that food is coming from. Just, just one step can have profound consequences. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's a great answer. So I think uh, awesome. I don't think you really needed to think about that anyway, did you? I think that's uh, right on the top, top, top step there anyway. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, time today, Bill. That's, that's been brilliant. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. That was great. Thanks again to Bill for that. That was really insightful and so much content in there to take away. And like I said earlier, he gave all our listeners a coupon code for products on his website. And the coupon code is SAVE50. That's S-A-V-E-5-0. So if you just go to his website, eatlikeahuman.com, he's got the products on there that you can take a look at, the videos and the plenty of content on there that you can scan through. If you go to his shop, just add SAVE50 to the coupon code in your cart at checkout. That is available until December the 31st. And after you've been to Bill's website, go to our own website, which is humannutritionlifestyle.com. We also have our own products on there. We still have our free consultation available in our shop. So take 
that up. And if you're really looking into getting into sorting out your nutrient-dense nutrition, don't know where to start or how to begin, then take up the free consultation offer. Let's have a chat and we can put you down the right road, steer you the right way to go. We also have our other products in the shop, our day-to-day -day guides for foundation level, intermediate or advanced. If you're really looking to nail down and get your nutrient-dense nutrition properly sorted out, then take advantage of the day-to-day -day guides. In them guides, you'll get Zoom calls and recipes and everything that can help you get a better nutrient-dense nutrition. So if that's something you're interested in, then take a look at those. Thank you very much for your time. Heed Bill's advice. Get in your kitchen. Make your own favourite foods from scratch. Think about how your food is processed, the how you're eating and not what you're eating. And if you're eating animal foods, then think about eating more of the animal, not just the meat. Animals have so much more to offer. Take very good care of yourselves. Eat very well and I shall see you next time.